See this? What is it? It's a micro cap. I've never seen one. It's so small. There are thousands of them. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. A roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Hi, everyone. It's not easy being small. No one notices you. Sometimes people take advantage of you. In this week's program, I'll speak with Jason Paltrowitz, Executive Vice President of Corporate Services at OTC Markets Group, about what small companies can do to lay the foundation for a successful public market experience. That foundation is a good management team, timely disclosure, and from an investor relations strategy, having a strategy. And if it is coming, we've got highlights from the latest IR Magazine webinar. New regulation in the form of MIFID II, otherwise known as the Recast Markets and Financial Instruments Directive, will lead to new challenges for investor relation officers. What MIFID II means for you. We'll find out later after this week's IR News. It was a night of glitz, glamour, good friends, good food, good conversation. And by evening's end, we knew who does the best investor relations in Canada. I won absolutely nothing, but I feel like a winner. Gold miner Agnico Eagle Mines and oil and gas producer Arc Resources dominated last week's IR Magazine Awards Canada. Each took away five awards, including Best Overall IR. Arc's David Carey was joined by CN's Paul Butcher and Econ Group's Adam Borgatti in picking up trophies for Best IR Officer in their class. Econ Group also won the award for Best Overall IR among small caps. And Pat Marshall, Communications and IR Vice President at Cineplex Entertainment, walked away with the Lifetime Achievement Award. She seems a bit young. The world's largest asset managers are pumping up their corporate governance muscle. BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street have all dramatically upped headcounts in the last three years. New York-based BlackRock now has the largest corporate governance team of any global asset manager. It hired 11 analysts for its stewardship division, bringing the total headcount to 31. Vanguard nearly doubled its team, now at 20, and State Street almost tripled personnel. The focus on corporate governance comes as more and more regulators and politicians around the world scrutinize the relationship between companies and their shareholders. Neary has appointed a new president and CEO. Gary LeBranch will take on the job in March. LeBranch has been an association executive for more than 35 years, serving as CEO for three organizations. Finally, when it comes to getting shareholders on side for say-on-pay votes, try writing drivel. According to a recent study, obfuscation in compensation reports works. Bo Kin is Associate Professor of Accounting at the University of Melbourne. So the results show that the less readable the report is, the more positive voting outcome it would be. So with the one standard deviation increase in our obfuscation score, the descent will decrease about 9.2% from the, from the median. 
So let's just say if the medium firm, you know, happen to use a more difficult to read report, so they're going to reduce this uh, negative vote by ne- by nearly ten percent. But Kin warns that sometimes there can be too much of a bad thing. So for the firms with you know most assured hold by institutional shareholders, we find that actually this obfuscation strategy will backfire. So that's lead to more negative vote. So this strategy seems to uh, be working only for the firms without sophisticated shareholders. OTC Markets Group organizes over 10,000 U.S. and international securities that trade over-the-counter into one of three tiered marketplaces. Apart from the top tier, which has financial requirements, the designations speak nothing to an issuer's quality or the merit of any security. Instead, it's all about the level of timeliness of a company's disclosure. A recent study by researchers at the University of Alabama and the University of Mississippi finds that firms in higher information tiers are more liquid than firms trading in lower ones. Perhaps no surprise to most IR magazine readers. For listed companies, timely disclosure in good times and bad is a capital markets mantra. What is perhaps surprising is how many OTC firms haven't learned that lesson. OTC Market Group's Jason Paltrowitz is determined to change that. Paltrowitz says the most successful small-cap firms are the ones that employ the same best practices as their bigger counterparts. I reached him at his New York office. Going silent never helps anybody and actually takes all that confidence away and, and will be, time and again, proves detrimental to the long-run uh, health of the company. How often does that happen? More often than you think. That doesn't happen when you're looking in the, in the world of perhaps the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ-listed companies. But when you get into the over-the-counter space, where the vast majority of small-cap and micro-cap public companies trade, what you'll see when you look at our markets is on the lowest, lowest tier, um, when you're looking at QB companies, or pink, pink companies, as we call them, and we have tiers within pink, pink current, pink limited, pink no information, you'll see a lot of movement of companies that go from current to limited information, and that becomes because of a delay in filing. Again, for for a vast majority of those companies, it's not because they're hiding anything. It's just because they didn't get to it. You know, they're running a business. It's like, oh, yeah, i got to do my quarterly. Oops, I forgot. When we see that if you're a pink current or an OTC QB or even a QX company and you're late in your filings, you get moved. Um, and if you if you do it often, or if you never become current in your filings, you know you get moved to right down to the lowest tier. So what we've created on our markets is the ability to try and police it, to try to make sure that investors know. But what I'll say is we do that. But when we do that, we get phone calls from very well-meaning companies that say, "Well, wait a minute, why have I moved down into this tier?" And you say, "Well, you know, you're late on your filing." Well, you know, I have all these reasons about why, and it's like, yes, but you're late on your filing. You know, you can't excuse that away. You know, ultimately, they don't realize that the ramification of that. And then it's only when they're out speaking to their investors who point them to the fact that they were late in the filing do they realize that that was probably not the smartest of moves. OTC Markets Group just published the first in a series of white papers aiming to help small caps with the basics of a winning investor relations program. Whatever 
industry education there is, unfortunately, is usually driven by uh, the providers of services for whom it behooves them to not necessarily give unbiased advice, but to give advice that results in business. And, and ultimately, like I said, we have so many companies on our market that we see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And to the extent we can educate companies to avoid the bad and the ugly, you know, for us, that's, that's a success. Whether there's financial gain as a company from that or not, if we can make the small cap market better, ultimately, we think we all kind of succeed in the long run. Alongside timely disclosure, Paltrowitz points to choosing the right management team as another core element in a quality small-cap IR program. Again, it seems like a no-brainer when you're a large-cap company because it's all kind of governed by the exchanges and the SEC, um, or a lot of it is governed. But when you're a startup or a new company, you know, chances are you're the, the creator of something, right? You built this from scratch. You know, maybe you're a great inventor. Maybe you're a visionary. But ultimately, and this is the hard part, sometimes you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I a chief executive officer? And there is that point when you grow up um, where you do have to look in the mirror and say, look, I can be the creative force of my company, um, but maybe I'm not the person to be the CEO. At the same time, it goes the other way. You know, maybe what's in the best interest of the company is having that creative force be the spokesman. And you shouldn't think of having somebody else, but you really need to think about that and what's best for the company. And then ultimately that goes down to the CFO as well. You know, we write in the paper, there are a lot of companies where, you know, your brother-in-law is an accountant and he's doing the books. But once you get into that realm of, of being a public company and having a public quote of trying to build your business, um, it's important that you have, you know, a CFO with, with experience of knowing how to run a company, not just balancing a checkbook. You know, it, it is right. that, that growing up, right? It's you're graduating high school, you're going to college, you're a big boy now, a uh, big girl now, and, and you kind of need to start acting that way. You're on your own, and you have responsibilities, and you have, to, you have to change your mindset a little bit. Once a company goes public, Paltrowitz says it should think strategically about its IR objectives. Small companies that don't map out these strategies in advance can end up just doing random things to attract investors or even ignoring an important set of investors altogether. If you look at kind of that 500 million market cap and lower, um, so we'll, we'll call that small cap for the sake of this, this call, what you'll find is that 50 to 60% of their investors are actually self-directed. Um, it's not the large institutions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's self-directed investors and small institutions. Um, you know, a lot of public companies want to get the Fidelities and the Janices and the Capitals of the world, but the reality is those aren't really the people that invest in, in the small and micro cap space. And so for companies that think that in order to be successful, they should devote all of their time and attention to trying to see the large institutions or who even think that large institutions are interested in them, um, it becomes wasted time you know, and failure because the reality is that's not where you're your first investors are going to come from. That's something you're going to grow into as you get into that billion market cap and higher. But if you're, yeah, we see it all the time, 100, 100 million market cap companies that are wasting all their time trying to get in to see, you know, large institutional investors, and, and chances are it's just, it's just not going to work for them. Unless there's some crazy new technology that they've come out with and there's something really substantial there, 
the reality is your investor base will primarily be self-directed, high net worth investors, uh, family office type investors, uh, and that's where you should spend your time. You'll find the full report on our website. What do we do next? They were 10 years older. The bonds we loved are dead. The bonds we loved are dead. I'll always think of you. Whenever I smell cider, but it won't be the same. Again, what do we do next? They were 10 years older. The new European Union regulatory scheme known as MIFID II will change how equity research is paid for. As of next year, research payments must be paid directly or through a dedicated research account, and not through trading commissions or soft dollars. This will not only put the value of research under a microscope, but also promises to profoundly alter the landscape for institutional investors and IROs around the world. A recent IR Magazine webinar, co-sponsored by Bloomberg, looks at the implications for IROs. IR Magazine's Brad Allen asked Bloomberg Intelligence's Sarah Jane Mahmood about how the coming changes will affect the asset management industry and the research market. New rules separating dealing commissions from payments for research will subject the value of investment research to ever closer scrutiny. MIFID II, which takes effect on the 3rd of January 2018, is likely to trigger a contraction in sell-side coverage and support and a more concentrated buy-side. As the asset management industry continues to consolidate and operate on a global basis, these changes will likely resonate internationally. These changes will all have implications for investor relations as research coverage will undergo upheaval over the next few years. The competition in the investment research market is likely to rise as a result of the MIFID II Dealing Commission rule. Portfolio managers may be more selective about the research they buy and shop around from multiple providers. If so, independent research providers would be more easily able to compete and gain access to the multi-billion dollar equity research market. Last year at a Bloomberg event, about 70% of audience members said they would expect a rise in the number of research providers post-MIFID II in the market. William Hill's IR director, Lindsay Wright, predicts that greater scrutiny on the value of research might lead to increased emphasis on thought pieces while downplaying the quarterly recap. The good news is it may well lead to less focus on financial results and a more long-term perspective, which I think most corporates would say they've been crying out for, Um, especially with the ongoing shift in the UK away from quarterly reporting and trading statements to financial updates maybe only twice a year. And I'm sure most of us would think that's a good thing. If it's about delivering value, I can certainly see the logic as to why there would be more room for boutique houses with specialist knowledge. Um, And given that um, it's likely to be the squeezed middle that falls away in analyst terms, very much as Sarah suggested, I think a lot of smaller mid-cap companies may well come to a place of needing to rely more on paid-for research to get that story out there. So we could well see non-independent research also increase. There's still plenty of guesswork left, but one way or another, demands on IRO seems set to grow. Um, I think with more intense sell-side reporting, if we're going to deal with more detailed, lengthier narrative reports from them, with greater buy-side access to manage, and potentially with having to manage more direct meeting management, it's going to be a big question for all of us about how we're going to resource this. 
And that may be more of a challenge for UK teams because we typically have just one or two people in our teams. And I know European teams tend to be much larger because they don't have the UK broking model that we rely on so much over here. But certainly you could start to make the argument for it to be time to start pitching for some additional resource. Um, in our case, one of the things we are thinking about is what tools we can use um, to make this work better. In part, um, what tools can we give investors to get them up the knowledge curve? Um, for instance, you could think about uh, something like a fact book that gives all the key line items from which someone can build a model from. Certainly the goal needs to be to raise the quality of meetings because I would argue that IR's time has just become much more valuable given the volume of uh, direct requests that we're likely to end up dealing with. You can check out the full webinar at irmagazine.com. And while you're there, you can also book your seats for the IR Magazine Awards USA. That's Thursday, March 23rd at Cipriani, New York. That's all for this week. Thanks to Just Jones for their kind musical enhancement. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.